Hamish Harding was a man who attended primary school in Hong Kong before returning to England for high school, and then he earned a science degree at Cambridge University. He ended up becoming a businessman based in the Indian city of Bangalore for five years, and then uh, where he was the managing director of a logistics company before establishing Action Aviation in 2004, where he became a billionaire. On his Instagram page, he writes, I take any opportunities to travel, break world records, and fly jets. Indeed, he has many world records, one of them for the longest duration and distance traversed at full ocean depth by a crewed vessel, and another for the fastest circumnavigation via both poles by aircraft. He holds two ocean depth records set in March 2021. Um, A self-made man, Hamish Harding, who perished aboard the Ocean Gate Titan submersible this past week. Here's what Hamish said about life, because he had made decisions all through life and had thought he made everything right and every right move, and he had the success to back that up. His comment is, I believe you make your own luck in life. You create the environment around you where luck comes or doesn't come based on your decisions your anticipation of things gone wrong, and taking steps before they go wrong. As I read that quote this week, I was reminded of Ernest Hemingway's comment about bankruptcy. He had gone bankrupt, and someone asked Hemingway, how, how did you go bankrupt? He said, little by little, and then all of a sudden. And life worked for Hamish Harding, And he could proudly say he had made all of the right moves and all of the right decisions until he didn't. And it's just at that point that we need to think about not just this life, but the life to come. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we will be looking at verses... 15, or 29, excuse me, through 49. 1 Corinthians 15, 29 through 49. We have looked at verses 1 through 11, where we've discussed the gospel and the essential of the gospel for our resurrection. The belief that Jesus died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, was buried and was raised again, bodily resurrection on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then last week, we looked at verses 12 through 28, and we saw some reasons why the resurrection is true for us if it's true for Christ, and what God has done for us in Christ by His bodily resurrection from the dead, that that means that we who belong to Christ will also bodily rise from the dead. And now, 
This morning we will look at why the Bible's view of the resurrection of the dead is true. Why is it true? And then we will look at how are the dead raised? What will our resurrection bodies be like? So I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 through 49. We'll begin with a very odd verse that I will attempt to do some explanation of, although it is a bit of an interesting journey, so pray for me about that verse. <laughs> Paul's giving some re- reasons why the Bible's view of the resurrection of the dead is true, and he begins by saying, verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have No knowledge of God, I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly body is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Please have a seat. Now, in verses 29 to 34, Paul is going to be answering this question, why is the Bible's view of the resurrection true? Why is it true? 
And he gives three reasons. The first reason, he uses the word they. The second reason, he uses the word we. And the third reason, he uses the word you. They, we, and you. Um, Verse 29 is the they reason. It says, otherwise, why do peop- what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Literally, what do they mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? It's a they reason. If the resurrection of the dead isn't true, why are they baptized for the dead? This is a hard verse. The Mormons build an entire theology on this verse in their practice of what they call proxy baptism. In other words, you are being baptized for dead loved ones in the belief that your baptism will bring about their justification before God. Uh, This is why, by the way, the Mormons spend a lot of time on genealogies because they want to go back into their generations to be able to be baptized on behalf of their dead loved ones. Now, what the Mormons have right is this truth. Not all who die will obtain eternal life. They're concerned. Not all who die will obtain eternal life. But a good cue to cults and detecting them is if they build an entire edifice of doctrine on one obscure and difficult to interpret verse. There is nothing else in the Bible about this practice. There is nothing really in ancient literature about the practice. So to try to build a huge doctrine of belief around something as obscure as this is really a wrong headed approach. The Mormons do this with several false anti-biblical assumptions, first being that a person is saved by baptism. That's not true. We are not made right with God by our baptism. Secondly, a wrong idea that one person's works can by proxy bring justification to another person. No, we are saved by grace and each one of us will stand on our own faith in Jesus Christ and if any individual does not stand on their faith in Jesus Christ, they will go to a Christless eternity of everlasting punishment. Now, there are over 40 views of what this verse means. (laughs) Um, One commentator says, I think there might be 400. At face value, it would mean that there were people at Corinth who were being baptized on behalf of dead people. But there's certain ways that we know what this verse can't mean because it would contradict other verses in the Bible. For example, Paul is not saying in some affirmative way that people were being baptized for the dead in order to get the dead into heaven. No one can make an expression of faith on behalf of another person. Jesus made this clear to Nicodemus when he said, you must be born again. 
Paul makes, or Peter makes this clear on the day of Pentecost when they, the people ask him the question, men and brethren, what shall we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. Believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Paul and Silas make this clear to the Philippian jailer when he asks them, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your house. That is, you all believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will all be saved. Paul's description of how to be saved makes this clear in Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. At the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20 verse 13, each person will be judged individually for what they have done. So no, Paul is not endorsing the idea of being baptized for the dead in order to get the dead into heaven. Paul, neither is Paul endorsing the idea of being baptized for the dead as a work that gets the dead right with God. Salvation is by grace through faith. It is not by works done by us in righteousness. One way that we can help to understand this verse is to ask some questions that are left unanswered by the text, but that we must engage in order to come to some conclusion. For example, one question, who is being baptized? The word people, really it's the word they in the original, what do they mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? This word they implies that it is not the Corinthian church, or at least not most of the Corinthian church that is doing this. What do people mean by being baptized? So he's not, it's not a common practice at Corinth. It's not saying, what do you mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? It's they. So then the next question is, for whom are they being baptized? Dead people in general? Dead loved ones? Dead people who had put their faith in Jesus but had not been baptized? It's a good question. And why were they doing this? What did they hope to accomplish by this act? So those are all questions that we can ask that the text doesn't answer, but will help us understand at least what the text doesn't mean. Now, there, let me tell you just a few of the ways in which this passage has been understood. I'll just pick some of the ones that I think are the most likely, okay? For example, one suggests that this word baptism is being used in a metaphorical or symbolic way, that it's not a reference to actual water baptism, but the word baptism is frequently used in the, in the sense of suffering, uh, the kind of suffering that is a baptism into the ranks of the dead. In other words, you would translate it as, uh, why are they entering a baptism of suffering if the dead are not raised? A second way to look at it is baptism with a view toward the dead and therefore of the life to come. You would translate it then, why are they baptized with a view toward death and the life to come? Another view is baptized on behalf of their soon-to-be-dead bodies. They're recognizing that they're about to die. Uh, death is imminent, and they will be raised up at the last day. Why are those soon-to-die be baptized if the dead are not raised? 
Another view is to look at the punctuation of the verse. Uh, For example, you could translate it otherwise, what shall they do if the dead are not raised? Would they be baptized for the dead? Question mark. Why are they baptized for them? Question mark. Another view is that they are baptized on behalf of those who recently converted to Christ but died before they could be baptized. In this sense, it would be a way of memorializing the dead person's faith. You would translate it then, why are they doing a ceremony of baptism for those who were saved but had no chance of being baptized? Here's one that I particularly like, uh, faith and baptism because of loved ones who were believers and had recently died. So yesterday we had a funeral for Nell Rawl. At funerals, we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, both for the assurance of the believer, but also as a way of communicating to those who have never put their faith in Christ, look at the dead person's faith in Jesus Christ and believe the gospel yourself, right? And so, you could translate this verse then uh, as saying, if there's no resurrection, what are you going to do with those folks who have been saved and baptized as a result of the testimony of a saint who died? If the dead are not raised at all, there's no testimony. Why is it that people get saved and baptized as the result of the death of a saved loved one? Now, last one. The same people who were saying that there's no resurrection were also foolishly undertaking baptism on behalf of some dead, unsaved friends. So, in effect, this view suggests that Paul is arguing, now, if these guys who really don't believe in the resurrection are also believing in this false idea of baptism for the dead, what are they doing with this nonsense? If the dead, as they suggest, aren't raised at all, why are they being baptized for them? So he's using a bad argument to demonstrate the truth of another idea. Yeah, I don't like that idea either. Are you confused yet? I love how one commentator says this. We can say this, that what Paul is identifying is something we don't know anything about. But the people to whom he wrote did know about it, or he would have explained it. And Paul himself is not endorsing this act of baptism. Rather, he is using this practice, whatever it is, to bolster his argument for the resurrection of the body. His point is, if the dead are not raised, why then are they baptized for the dead? In other words, it shouldn't matter to us too much exactly what this baptism for the dead means. Paul is simply using the practice as a reason to see the real point. And the real point is the bodily resurrection first of Christ and then for all who belong to Him. It is a reason for why the Bible's view of the resurrection of the dead is true. Now, that's the they reason. Let's look at verses 30 to 32, and we come to the we reason. Paul moves from some nameless group of they now to himself and his fellow missionary workers. He's going to be talking about himself and his 
missionary band here. Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? Note the time value here. Paul understands that his ministry as a missionary puts him in danger at all times. Why are we in danger every hour? Why are we putting ourselves through this if there's no resurrection of the dead? He says, I lodge a protest here. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. The pride he has in the Corinthians' faith in Christ that he has in Christ Jesus. He says, I'm out here dying every day. Why am I putting myself out for all that? Your existence as believers has been of more value to me than life itself, and that's nonsense if there's no resurrection of the dead. Paul again continues verse 32 with his we argument. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Perhaps... At Ephesus, he literally was put in the arena and had to fight wild beasts. More likely, he was fighting the enemies of the gospel. Either way, his life was in constant danger. Why would he do that if he wasn't absolutely certain of the Bible's view of the resurrection of the dead? Paul goes on to say that, in fact, if the dead aren't raised, hedonism is actually the best plan for life right now. If the dead are not raised, end of verse 32, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This is uh, probably a quote from Meander. And basically, he's saying if, the, if there's no resurrection of the dead, it's just if all that's at the end is nothing then we might as well just eat and drink and be merry now. Ecclesiastes' life of emptiness, empty, empty, nothing. That life of emptiness is the best that could be hoped for. Paul is saying that he would be insane to put himself through all this if there is no resurrection. So we've got the they reason in verse 29 the we reason in verses 30 to 32, and now we come to the you reason in verses 33 and 34. You do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, I say this to your shame. You should stop being deceived. Your bad company is corrupting your thinking. I don't know if we recognize just how much the community in which we spend our time impacts our thinking. We all like to think that we are 100% objective and that the entire world is biased. But this is not true. Every one of us is influenced by the community or the company that we keep. Uh, Let me give a silly illustration. Let's say that I am a fighting Illini fan, which I am. And I raise up my children, and I want them to love the fighting Illini. 
And so I dress them up in fighting Illini garb, and we go to Illini games, and we watch the Illini win. Well, let's not be too optimistic. But, you know, we're looking at all this great stuff about the Illini and how much we love them, and we learn the songs and all of this stuff. And uh, then they grow up, and they, let's say they marry an Iowa… Now, they didn't do this, but let's say they married Iowa farm girls, and they all ended up becoming fans of the Iowa Hawkeyes. What would we say? Bad company has corrupted good morals, right? Now, I told you it was a silly illustration, but think about this. The people we spend time with influence our thinking about fashion, about diet, about politics, about theology, about how we handle emotions, how we raise our children, what we think about literally everything, what we think about the resurrection. You see, Paul is concerned that the people at Corinth had been hanging around too much with people who didn't believe in the resurrection, and as a result, their thinking was being corrupted. All you have to do to prove this to yourself is talk to someone that you have spent a lot of time with years ago, and you live, let's say, in a rural area, and they live in the heart of a city, and just talk to them about almost anything, and you will be shocked by the differences of viewpoint. Why? Because of the communities in which you exist. Now, Paul is not saying here, don't ever spend any time with bad company. He's not saying that. In fact, we need to engage in our world and have conversations with people. But what he is saying is, don't spend all your time with bad company because they corrupt you. And that's why he's saying, wake up from your drunken stupor. You are not thinking clearly. You are as if you are inebriated. It is as if your mind is being altered. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. Some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So, the Bible's view of the resurrection is true for the they reason. Why else are they baptized for the dead? For the we reason, why are we suffering like we are if we haven't, if the dead are not raised? And you need to wake up because you have been corrupted by the bad company that you're hanging around. So now we come to the second half of this section. How are the dead raised? What will resurrection bodies be like? And Paul asks this directly in verse 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? And he gives three answers to this question. Verses 35 to 38 is answer number one, which is, in our current world, death is a precondition for life. Out of death, a new expression of life comes. So he's saying, first answer of how the dead are raised is death is a precondition. 
you got to die in order to have the new life come. Verse 36, it's the foolishness to question this. It's everywhere true. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. You got to have in the, just the world as it exists, something has to die in order for new life to come. And then he gives the illustration of a plant, right? What you sow is not the body that is to be, but the, a bare kernel. What dies is not the new life, but God, verse 38, gives a new body as He chooses, as He pleases. There's no visible hint in the seed what the living plant will be. Uh, Carol and I have on occasion taken some seeds and we thought we would remember what they were and we'd stick them in an envelope and we didn't write on the the outside of the envelope what they were. You ever done that? So you think, well, we'll just plant them and see what comes up, right? Because there's no visible picture of looking at the seed of what it will become. Paul is saying this is about our resurrection bodies. There is an a unity, a wonderful continuity between our present body and the body we will have in the new creation, but it's like the difference between a seed and a, and a full-grown plant. What you see in the seed, you can't really tell the glory of what it will be. Now, that's not a perfect analogy in that with plants, the individual continuity is not there that Paul is arguing for in resurrection of our bodies. So, we come to answer number two, verses 39 to 44. There are all kinds of what we might call bodies in God's creation, and each one is adapted by God for its own particular purpose. Verse 39. Not all earthly bodies in this present life are the same, are they? There's one kind for people and one for animals and one for birds and one for fish, each created for fulfilling their purpose in their environment. So we would not expect the fish to win the sprint race, but it probably would win the swim race. Likewise, we would not expect a cheetah to win the flying race, but perhaps a peregrine falcon would win the flying race. Each earthly body is created for fulfilling its own purpose in its environment. Verse 40 to 41, now he's talking about heavenly bodies. Not all heavenly bodies are the same, and he makes reference to the sun and the moon and the stars. Each was created for fulfilling their purposes. Each body, each of these entities, each body has its own glory. There's a glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, and each star differs in its own glory. Now, notice what he says, verse 42 then, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. Our resurrection bodies are like this. 
Verse 42, it's sown perishable, what is raised is imperishable. This is a phrase where the focus is on permanence. Right now, our bodies are perishable. They are not permanent. Our resurrection bodies will be imperishable. They will be permanent. Now, we like to think that our bodies are permanent. We like to pretend that. For example, if you've never seen, haven't seen someone for a long time, perhaps you go to a high school reunion and you say to someone or someone says to you by way of compliment, you haven't changed a bit. You haven't changed a bit. No greater lie has ever been uttered, right? Why? Because all we've been doing since the moment we were born is becoming more and more corrupt, right? And so we shouldn't anticipate that we will get just better and better. We are, in fact, all dying. Um, but just like a seed, this life, this body, dies in order that we have a resurrection body which is permanent. I want you to just weigh on that. Just think on that for a moment. That we will have bodies that will be so glorious that we will be able to see one another after a billion years and be able to say more truly than we could ever say it here, you haven't changed a bit. permanence. Verse 43, like celestial bodies, our bodies are sown in dishonor, humiliation, lowly. It is raised in glory. The focus here is on prominence, prominence. You know, in Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, that's what we got right now, lowly, to be like His glorious body, a prominence. C.S. Lewis said that if we were to see someone right now how they will be, we would strongly be tempted to worship them. That's the difference between the body we have right now, sown in dishonor, humiliation, lowly, raised in glory, in prominence. Second half of verse 43, like a seed, it is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. Our resurrection bodies will have a permanence. They will have a prominence. Here the focus is on performance. Performance. How they will function. Sown in weakness. Raised in power. Now we all like to think that we can improve ourselves. And once in a while in various things we can but I hate to tell you the news. The long arc of things here in this life is that you are not getting better and better and more and more powerful. You are getting weaker and weaker 
and you will die. But like a seed, we are raised in power. We will be able to accomplish things that are not even comprehensible at the moment. The, the beauty of this is that we all, like right now, want to live some kind of pretend world about our current bodies and give no consideration to our resurrection bodies. Either right now we are trying to resist the process of corruption that's going on here, and we want to pretend it doesn't exist and say, well, look how great I am, or we will look at our bodies right now and we just spend all our time mourning over it and talking about how bad it is and how horrible it is and don't spend any time thinking about the glory that's coming. Verse 44, like celestial bodies, it's sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Now, the, the key thing here is to recognize when, when Paul uses the word natural and spiritual, he doesn't mean having substance and not having substance. Sometimes we use the word spiritual to mean that it's ethereal, it doesn't have substance. That's not what he's talking about. Both are what we would call corporeal. They are physical bodies. You have a physical body now, and you will have a physical body in the resurrection to come. But one is called natural. The Greek word is psychical, and you will have a spiritual body that is made by the Spirit of God. And this doesn't mean that it's without physical substance. It's a body, but it's supernatural. It's a supernatural body. It's in that sense that we call it spiritual. The first body was built for this world in all its corruption. The resurrection body will be built for the new creation world. And so, in these few verses, Paul focuses on four aspects of our resurrection bodies. It's permanence its prominence, its performance, and its purpose. And he concludes in verse 44, there is a genuine continuity between the bodies we have now and the bodies we will have in the new creation. Look at verse 44 at the end. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Just as surely as we have bodies right now, we will have bodies in the resurrection, in the life to come. And sometimes we look at that and we go, oh no, you mean I'm going to have this body in the, something that looks like this body in the resurrection to come? And the answer is, yeah, every bit as much as a seed looks like the plant, right? Don't get too worried about that, friends. You will be glorious. <laughs> it's such good news. So, answer number one, in our current world, death is a precondition for life. Out of death, new expression of life comes. There's all kinds of bodies in God's creation. Each one is adapted by God for its own purpose. That's answer number two. Now in verses 45 to 49, he gives answer number three. All that we know presently is this present world as sons and daughters of Adam. But the world to come will be our new environment as sons and daughters of the second Adam. There are three contrasts 
between the, this world and the world to come, what Paul calls the natural or psychical world and the spiritual world. Verse 45, Adam, the first Adam, represents the first world. Genesis 2-7, Adam became a living being. The last Adam, the second Adam, represents the world to come, a life-giving spirit. Verse 46, the first world, the natural psychical world, comes first in time. It's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. This life leads to the next one. Verse 47, the issue of permanence is again raised. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. See the true and better Adam born to save the hell-bound man is what we sang. The true and better Adam. Verse 48, this, these two representative Adams pave the way for the destiny of every human being. The first Adam is of dust, and so are all human beings. The second Adam is of heaven, and so all human beings who belong to Christ, the second Adam, belong to heaven. And that's why Paul could say in Ephesians 2, that we are already seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. It's why he could say our citizenship is no longer here on this earth. Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven right here and now. Verse 49 then, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. If you read this in the ESV, you will see a little footnote. See the little number two there in verse 49, where it says that some manuscripts say, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, let us also bear the image of the man of heaven. I want to suggest to you that that's correct. Let us also bear the image of the man of heaven. The reason is, it's not just some manuscripts. It's almost all manuscripts say, let us. And so, this is application. Paul is saying, if all of this is true, if the Bible is right about the resurrection, if we know what our resurrection bodies are going to be like, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, let us bear the image of our Savior, Jesus. So, how should the promise of a resurrection life or a resurrection body affect your everyday life? How should it affect it? Let me share some ways. First, your suffering, no matter how deep or how long-standing it is, your suffering is temporary. Your suffering is temporary. And there is coming a resurrection body that will be in these beautiful descriptions that we saw here, permanent, prominent, powerfully performing, exactly suited for its purpose. 
our suffering, the Bible calls it, all of it, light and momentary. Second, our discontent as believers, our discontent should be replaced with overwhelming joy. I actually believe that were Paul to appear to 21st century America and look at the conversations that every day genuine Christians are having, he would be shocked that they are not happier people. Why are you so unhappy? <laughs> he would tell us, look, look at the life we're going to have. And he would beg us, challenge us, exhort us to joy. Yes, we should feel and mourn losses, but we must exult in our victory in Christ. Third application. Many of us wrestle with self-esteem over our bodies. Some of us wrestle with the fact that, oh, I hate my body. I don't understand why I am so, and fill in the blank, right? And we just wrestle with that. Others of us have an overextensive view of our bodies. We look at ourselves in the mirror and we go, look at you, devil, you are so amazing. Both ideas are flawed and broken because what we have right now are seeds, okay? And we should be glad that this is just the seed and the glory of the full plant is yet to be seen, but it will be glorious. We will look in awe at one another. This means that we must trust Jesus. If you want this kind of life forever, there's only one way to it. Repent of your sin and trust what Jesus did at the cross. Believe that he rose from the dead and that he will take you with him where he is and you too will have a resurrection body like his resurrection body. You see, we do not make our own luck because we actually cannot control everything. Hamish Harding appeared to control almost everything in his life and was rewarded handsomely for it. He ended up wrongly concluding that he was in control of it all until that fateful day last week when his lack of control literally crushed his body to death. Hamish Harding was deadly wrong. Rather, we should embrace this thought. God is preparing us for a life to come in which He will make us gloriously new. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, take these truths to our hearts. For the suffering, help them to be comforted in the fact that it's temporary. For the discontent, bring us to a place of overwhelming joy, God, over these truths. 
For those of us who wrestle with self-esteem over our bodies, help us to rejoice that this is just the seed and the glory of the full plant is coming. Help anyone who has never put their faith in Jesus to do that so that they will be able to enjoy you forever along with all who have trusted you. And help us not to think of ourselves more highly than we should, thinking that we are in control, for we are not. At any point, our lives can be snuffed from us. Help us so to live a life of faith that you are preparing us for a life to come in which we will be like Jesus, for we will see him just as he is. In Christ's name, amen.